Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this evening uh, to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 25 and uh, turning uh, to verse 19. So this is Genesis 25 at verse 19, and you'll find this on page 19 in the church Bibles. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in the tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Lord willing, uh, we want to begin a new series in our evenings together. And we want to look at the life of Jacob. Uh, There are several reasons that are attractive for looking at the life of Jacob. One of those reasons is, is that it helps us Uh, to look at the unfolding of God's purposes in history. That when we come to the the scriptures, we're not just looking at individuals uh, who lived at a certain time, but we're looking at the unfolding of God's purposes in history. And so it is true when people make that point, when we're looking at history, 
we are really describing his story. The Bible is about the unfolding of God's story, the unfolding of God's grace in and through the lives of individuals and how God's purposes are developed and completed in time. When you return to the book of Genesis, you remember one of the uh, pillars of God's purposes is unveiled to Abraham. God promised to, uh, to bless Abraham and that through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so now God's purposes are directed to Abraham and through the line of Abraham, the promise of overcoming the curse now takes shape. Before Abraham, we hear about the curse characterizing the world. You think of the flood. You think about Cain killing his brother. You see the effects of sin. But when you come to Abraham, you see this overriding of that with the blessing, a promised blessing that will reach and extend uh, to the nations of the earth. And so God's purposes take shape with Abraham. And ultimately, Abraham is going to have a child. And that child comes in his old age, Isaac, or as they called him, laughter. Abraham is 100 years old when he has that son. But now God's purposes will carry on from Abraham to Isaac and from Isaac ultimately to Jacob. And through Jacob, we see the formation of really a people of God. God's formation of a community takes shape in the life of Jacob. And so it's helpful for us to be able to come and to look at the life of Jacob simply for understanding the, the overarching structure of God's purposes, to be able to look at the big picture of things and not just to get lost in the, the woods looking at the details. We see the overarching of God's purposes even when we come to this patriarch of Israel. There's another reason why Jacob is so attractive. Because as one person has said, when you come to look at individuals, individual characters in the Bible, oftentimes you will see distinct aspects of the life of, of faith emerge. You will see certain components or certain elements of the life of faith coming to, to expression. And when you think about Jacob, one of the things that you see time and time again, actually from beginning to end, is how the life of Jacob is wrapped up and connected with family. From beginning to end, the story of Jacob is told through the lens of family. That not only tells us something about the importance of family, the, the place of family, it tells us something else. It tells us that from the vantage point of the life of faith, it is in the context of one's family. It is before one's family that your life of faith is lived out that oftentimes it's before our very family members where we have to make choices, where we have to give expression to our faith, where it can be most costly and most painful. And so when we look at Jacob, we're looking at someone who's a broken man. We're looking at someone who is wrestling with God. We're looking at someone who, both in the good and in the bad, 
is exercising his faith. And yet we're seeing him do that in the context of his family. And so we can already appreciate the relevance of Jacob. A man who with all his warts, with all his weaknesses, with all his struggles, is making choices in the presence of his family. Choices that affect his family. And choices that are also influential on his family. And that's true of us as well. That it is before our family, it is before your family, that the life of faith is oftentimes lived. And the choices that you are making can have influences both good and evil on the lives of others. And so as we come to that, uh, we should be able to appreciate the wisdom of God here, even in the stories of Jacob and of others, how relevant these people are. Because while we live in a very different context, we still face the same issues of how do we relate with family? How does the influence and the formation of family influence us? And how does the life of faith take effect and grow in that sometimes awkward dynamic of family life? There's many things that we could highlight even as we come to the beginning of the life of Jacob. Some things that we don't always take notice of. But you notice here that as we come to it, it tells us that at the beginning, Jacob's birth, Jacob and Esau were born when Isaac was 60 years old. Isaac was a man who had been married, it tells us, for 20 years to Rebekah. And she was barren for that period of time. But what is significant about that detail that Isaac was 60 years old when he finally had the twin boys is this, that Jacob not only had the opportunity to hear about the promises of God from the patriarch Isaac, from the child who was ultimately put on the altar, but he could hear about the promises of God from his grandfather as well. Abraham, if we do a couple quick calculations, we know that Abraham lived to 175, which means that Jacob and Esau, for the first 15 years of their life, they had that formation of not only having their parents, Isaac and Rebekah, teaching them about the ways of God, they also had their grandparents. That Jacob could listen, Esau could listen to Abraham recounting what he had heard. He could hear how Abraham himself had heard the promises of God, that in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so here is Jacob and Esau growing up in a position of privilege where they are being taught about God's promises, where they have a family with all their warts, with all their struggles, that can pass on the faith to them and how they were reared in that context. And so as we come to this, again, we see the, the, the factor of the family uh, from the very beginning. But as we come to the, uh, the beginning of Jacob, we really wanted this evening zero in on an oracle that was given about Jacob. Uh, an oracle that precedes even his birth and that shapes his story and that shapes his life. 
And we want to be able to see that God's gracious purposes are directed not according to human custom or to human expectation, but according to God's own free pleasure. I mentioned uh, that uh, uh, Rebecca was barren for 20 years. It tells us there that Abraham had a child, laughter, or Isaac, that Isaac was now the recipient of God's promises, and that Isaac married Rebecca, and then for 20 years, they had no children. That would have been a heavy burden for that couple for a, a number of reasons. It would have been a heavy burden simply for the natural longing that many have of having children. To be able to direct love towards another, to be able to bring new life into this world, is, is a, a longing and a desire that many share. And so to be deprived of that would have been a burden and a trial for them. For 20 years, they didn't have that. But more than that, they lived in a context where there would have been a social stigma about not having children. One's own sense of prominence and pride and glory was oftentimes associated with the abundance of children. And so in that context, it would have been especially painful to have no children. But most importantly, it would have been a heavy burden on them because they were promised that it is through Isaac that God's blessing will be expressed. That it's the line of Isaac now that carries the promise of God's blessing. And here they are with no children. But you notice here that it tells us that as a result, that Isaac went and prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren and God granted his prayer. That Isaac is able to live in his own moment and he's able to appreciate his own moment in light, uh, in light of God's overarching purposes. He brings these things to God rather than grieving in isolation, rather than shielding himself or suppressing his pain. He turns to the Lord, looking to the Lord's purposes ultimately to be expressed and to be revealed. And here we see how he uh, acknowledges the Lord and looks to the Lord for comfort. How very different it is by nature when people live their lives ignoring God's purposes. When man or when woman becomes the measure of all things. When the ultimate standard of fulfillment in life is one's own self. Here is Isaac, a man of faith, turning to God with his grief. Asking God for relief. Asking God to provide. And we see this God-centeredness that shapes the life of faith. That he's living his life in light of God's purposes. And so the Lord ultimately blesses uh, uh, Rebecca and she conceives and is pregnant. And it tells us that Rebecca's pregnancy was a very difficult one. It tells us uh, that in her trials, in her struggles, she says, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Uh, her, her difficulty, her, her afflictions during her pregnancy are so troubling that she consults the Lord about what exactly is happening to her. And it's in that context that God gives an oracle to Rebecca, an oracle that shapes the life of Jacob, but an oracle that shapes more than the life of Jacob, an oracle that tells us something about God's purposes and of God's grace. 
And so this evening we want to think about the oracle that is given about Jacob. And then secondly, the outworking of that oracle in uh, the, the taking of the birthright. Well, first, there is the oracle. As she is told there in verse 23, it says, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Rebecca has twins. But she is informed that she does not simply have two children. She is told that she has two nations in her womb. That's not a, a common way of thinking uh, when we think about someone that's pregnant. Uh, we tend to think of the potential of when someone is pregnant. We think of the, the life of that child. We think about the duration of what that child will become, the woman or the man that they will grow up to be, what they will do in their life. So much potential and so much opportunity. But we tend to limit our gaze, we limit our, our focus to, to that life. But Rebecca here is being taught not just to think in terms of that one life, but she is being taught these two children will have children. And many of those children will have other children. In other words, that Rebecca's work, that Rebecca's carrying of new life into this world has great consequence, that it has a great outcome, that it is much bigger than simply the duration of 70 or 80 or 90 years, that she is going to bring forth two nations, that this is much bigger than simply one life. And whether we have children or not this evening, there's something in that that should be shaping the way that we think about our own lives. That what we do has implications not just directly to one life, but that it has implications and can have influence on generations. That to be able to influence another, to be able to minister to another, to be able to lead someone to Christ, can have influence and effect for generations to come. And so here, Rebecca is being taught something about the, the gravity, not in a crushing way, but something of the greatness of the work that she is engaged in. She has two nations in her womb to be able to think in terms of a bigger story, to be able to think of, of something bigger than even her own life, the time frame of her own existence in this world. She's able to see that what she does now has consequences beyond her life and has a part in God's purposes. God is going to bring forth two nations from her and she is to have that mindset, my story under the umbrella of God's story, my life under the vantage point of God's purposes. But she's told more than that. She is told there are two nations in her womb but she's told those two nations within her shall be divided. Those two nations shall be separated. Those two nations shall be in conflict. She is being taught here something about the purposes of God, that what is going to happen is one of conflict, which has implications not just for understanding the story of Jacob and Esau, but 
is helping the descendants of Jacob to understand their story as well. That the two nations that are formed that are in tension, that ultimately this is something that God is using and that God is uh, uh, sovereignly directing as well. The people of Israel, as they heard this story, as the people of Israel were taught about the oracle that was given uh, to Jacob, they were to understand that the, the tension with the descendants of Esau was something ultimately directed by God himself. And as you trace the Old Testament, don't you see that tension emerge? You remember when the people came up out of the land of Egypt. They come to the Edomites. They ask for passageway to travel through their land. The Edomites are aggressive and they come out ready to fight. And so the Israelites are prevented from passing through their land. You see that in the story of King Saul and in King David's lifetime. There are feuds with the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. And under David, the Edomites are defeated and subdued only to ultimately rebel under the days of King Jehoram. That, that tension continues to exist. When you get into the prophets, you realize that when the kingdom of Israel is defeated, that it tells us that the Edomites rejoiced at the downfall of what they perceived as their enemies. They laughed and celebrated that Israel had been humiliated. That tension continues to carry forward throughout the Old Covenant scriptures. It even finds its way into the New Testament scriptures. When you turn to the Gospel of Matthew, it tells us that Jesus, it describes Jesus as the son of Jacob. He's a descendant of Jacob. But it tells us that Jesus was brought up in a context in which there was hostility towards him. That King Herod wanted to kill all the male children under the age of two in Bethlehem. And so he ordered a decree to have them all put to death. And according to the first century historian Josephus, Herod was an Edomite. So you see this trajectory, this arc that is following throughout the scriptures of a tension that exists between these two groups. That there is opposition, there is conflict, there is not unity, but there is two different ways of life that are being put one against the other. And yet the people of God, the descendants of Jacob, are here being taught even this is part of God's purposes. And you're to live understanding God is directing all things. And so this oracle that comes to Rebekah is one of recognizing something big is happening. Not two children, two nations. Two nations that will not be united they will be separated. They will work against one another. One will ascend over the other. One will be superior to the other. One will be victorious over the other. But it's the last statement that is the boldest of all the statements. The older will serve the younger. That statement shapes and serves not just as the preface for understanding Jacob, but for understanding God's purposes. That God is directing all these things, not according to human custom, where the oldest, the firstborn, naturally ascends to a, a, a position of prominence in the family. The firstborn ascends in terms of having the highest respect, 
In God's purposes, it won't be so. He is free to choose whoever he wants to be blessed. It is according to God's own design. And he chooses to have the secondborn, the lesser, to be raised up and to be exalted over the firstborn. <laughs> this is the oracle that is to shape the, the narrative about the life of Jacob. As we mentioned, it is the most striking statement that is said uh, that the older will serve the younger. And that is evident even as we come ultimately to look at the birthright. The birthright, according to the law, was the passing on of a double inheritance to the, the firstborn. Uh, the firstborn received a double inheritance in comparison with his siblings. But he also took on a, a position of respect and prominence in the family. He really he takes on that leadership role in the family, taking care of the family. And here we're already seeing that what naturally is gravitated towards the firstborn is not how God's purposes will be worked out. Because God's grace isn't something formulaic. It's not something mechanical that we can control. God chooses to bless however God chooses to bless. And here God determines, my blessing will be on Jacob, the younger, not the older. The people of God, again, as they hear this story, are to be shaped by it. They are to live their life in the midst of trials, in the midst of the conflict with the Edomites, in the midst of the Edomites mocking them, in the midst of the aggression of the Edomites. They are to live knowing that the favor of God is directed on the offspring of Jacob. God's purposes will be realized through the line of Jacob according to his decree. They were to live with that mindset. God's story shapes how I interpret my reality. But more than that, they were to understand something else. This oracle tells them how they were to look at themselves. God chose Jacob, not on the basis of anything Jacob had done. God chose to raise up Jacob before he was born in order that it might be clear that it depends not on works, but on the purposes of God. That's what Paul was saying in Romans 9. It's God's purpose that shapes all things. God is sovereign to choose and to show his grace as he sees fit. And for the people of God, they were to live not with a sense of pride, we're better than the Edomites, but rather they were to recognize it is only by God's grace that we have any blessing at all. It is only by God's grace. We can't look at anything within ourselves because there's not much difference between us and the Edomites. Rather, it is because God chose before anyone had done anything, either good or bad. And as we come to look at the life of Jacob, we realize it's not just before Jacob did anything good, but despite or before Jacob did any of the bad. Jacob doesn't come away looking very worthy of God's blessing when we read his story. 
Neither does Esau. It's not that one is obviously a better recipient, but rather God's purposes being worked out in history through sinful people. God's grace shapes all things. Jacob's story then is prefaced by the decree of God. And as we consider this man, it is uh, with that understanding that God's purpose to bless this man, not only before he did anything good, but in spite of what he did bad. And that's true of every believer. That's the story of every believer. God's grace frames their life. It shapes their life. It is what gives them faith. It's not something that they can point back at themselves, but rather they see that my whole story is prefaced by God's purposes. And so we see that even here in that oracle. That's ultimately the pattern that we see throughout Scripture, isn't it? God chooses Abel over Cain. God chooses David over his older brothers. God chooses Solomon over Adonijah. God chooses the disciples, fishermen, common people, over people of nobility, the priests, the scribes. God chooses what is lowly and is pleased to exalt the humble. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, isn't it? He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. God's grace is not based on the worthiness of the recipient, but of God's own free choice. That's how God works. And that's the story of the life of faith. But we also see God's purposes worked out even in the history of Jacob's life. We're told uh, after the days came for uh, uh, Jacob and Esau to be, given, uh, be born that they came out very different. Red and hairy was Esau and smooth-skinned uh, was Jacob. Uh, that the two boys were vastly different. Uh, that they had not only differences of appearance, but they were difference of uh, interests as well. These two uh, not only were polar opposites, but the narrator makes the not-so-subtle hint that the parents played a factor in that family dynamic of separation. That Esau loved, uh, that Jacob, Isaac loved Esau because of his gain, and Rebekah loved Jacob. That there was a preference given towards one child over the other. Their affection was directed towards those who reflected their own interests, which contributed to the division between the siblings. And we see again the dynamics of family life working itself out. That our experience can shape and divide. And yet at the same time, God works through it all. That as painful or as welcoming, as healing or as divisive as a family life can be, God is working through those experiences. And even where it brings division ultimately, uh, we see the outworking of God's purposes. But we're told uh, here about uh, the birthright and the outworking of how that ascendancy already begins to manifest itself. It tells us that once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. 
Everything about this whole scenario speaks of Esau's desperation, uh, a sense of urgency. When he comes in, we could literally describe that as him saying, let me devour some of that red red. That, that even the repetition of red red underscores his desperation and urgency. He comes in and he is demanding his physical desires to be satisfied. And Jacob sees an opportunity here to get the blessing of the birthright. And so he tells him to sell that birthright. And Esau says, what use is that birthright to me? And so Jacob says, swear to me. And he ultimately gives it. And notice in verse 34, with four quick verbs, it says, he gave it to him and Esau ate and drank, rose and went his way. And so Esau despised his birthright. This is not uh, uh, commending Jacob by the silence of any evaluation. When you read on in Jacob's life, at the end of Jacob's life, you remember Jacob talking to Pharaoh and Jacob makes a contrast with himself, with his grandfather and his own father. He says his father lived a a full life and died uh, of an old age. That Isaac also lived a uh, a full life. Whereas he says about himself, my days have been few and full of trouble. Jacob, no doubt, is referencing back on his own past and how his own decisions brought so much pain into his life. But especially here in this event, we see the focus is on Esau, that Esau despised his birthright because he was controlled by his passions. We might sit here and actually feel sympathy for Esau, that when he comes in and he, he pleads for his soup, Jacob takes advantage of the situation, but we might find ourselves sympathetic to Esau. But there's really no reason to think that he was going to starve to death here. Rather, it's just his own desperation being expressed, that he is a man who is controlled by his passions and shows that what matters most to Esau is satisfying his physical pleasures. That is his great aim in life, that it is to be satisfied. And if we live with that mindset ourselves, we might be sympathetic. But the story of Esau shows how tragic that way of life is because it brings heartache and division and devastation. But more than that, because we're not living in terms of the consequences. We're not living in light of the big picture. We're we're confining ourselves to the moment in which we are in. There's nothing greater than to satisfy my physical pleasure. And so Esau actually becomes emblematic. He becomes a warning to the people of God. Not to be unholy like Esau, the writer of Hebrews says. Who despised his birthright and gave it up for a single meal. Once we step back and we look at what he gave up. We see that it was something foolish. He was was the inheritor of a godly line of blessings. He was the inheritor of a position of influence to bless others. Esau didn't care about that. He only cared about his physical desires. And so he made foolish choices. But can the same accusation be leveled against you? Where the greatest aim in your life is simply to please yourself. Rather than to step back and to recognize 
God's purposes. To recognize that we are the recipients of a godly inheritance. To recognize that we are those who are given a promise of God's blessings. Do we live rather for the moment? That we're willing to give up everything for the momentary satisfaction of pleasure? Is there no higher principle to life? And if there is, what is it? The life of Jacob is about recognizing God's purposes. The word of God prefaces his story. It shapes his story. It defines his story. It is recognizing the grace of God in Christ and living for that above all else. The scriptures teach us that we're all like Esau, that we have despised the inheritance. We are a people who treat as a light thing all that God bestows upon us. We treat it as something of little worth. That's what we do when we sin. We're saying it's a light thing. It doesn't really matter. God isn't that big of a deal. But the scriptures teach us that there is someone who does treasure a godly inheritance. Someone who's actually a better version of Jacob. Whereas Jacob came to steal away that inheritance from his brother, the Lord Jesus came into this world to recover a godly inheritance that we forsake. That Jesus came into this world and that he was willing to die in order to keep his inheritance. That he was promised an inheritance and he was willing to die for her in order that he might treasure her and that she might enjoy the blessings of God. We need a better version of Jacob. Jacob here is just as self-centered as Esau. And yet we see God's purposes working through this situation where one will ascend and the other will be debased. God's grace is being worked out in these individuals' sinful lives. But it's forcing us to be able to live in light of God's purposes rather than just in the moment. The oracle of God shapes the life of Jacob. It shapes the life of Israel. It's meant to shape our lives too. Are you acknowledging the story of God? His story? Or are you living simply for the time frame of your own life? The few short years that we are given. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about the life of Jacob, that we would see all the struggles and the tensions that it brings to be able to live recognizing the sovereignty of God, to live recognizing the warts that come out in our own stories, to recognize the pains of the past, and to recognize the divisions that come within families. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be able to find comfort in the Lord Jesus Christ, to see the purposes of God being worked out and how God's blessing is directed towards those who are unworthy. And we pray that we would not be people who treat it as a, a thing of little worth to live knowing our God or of knowing your blessing. But may we be people who stand in awe that the Lord Jesus was willing to come into this world to recover
sinners unto yourself, who was willing to lay down his life in order that he would have an inheritance himself. And we pray, Lord, that we would stand amazed and give you the praise. Go before us now in Jesus' name. Amen.